0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
1: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow.
2: I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York.
0: And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology.
2: Coming up, the U.S. it plans tighter measures against China to restrict its access to advanced chip technology. We're going to break down the details and the market implications.
0: And we'll have the latest updates from the Israel-Hamas war and discuss the role social media plays in delivering up-to-date and accurate news.
2: Plus, we're going to kick off the coverage of New York Tech Week as industry titans gather in the Big Apple for a full week of panels, events and much more.
0: The top story is Bloomberg reporting expanding technology export curbs to China in the semiconductor space. It had a pronounced impact in markets in Asia and Europe overnight, also in US pre-market. Actually, a lot of those names are now markedly higher. But pay attention to the chip equipment makers because that is a focus of these curbs. Let's get the specifics and bring in Bloomberg's Mackenzie Hawkins, one of the reporters on that Bloomberg exclusive. And Mackenzie, Bloomberg sources are telling us these chip curbs are going to be expanded. How so? In what
3: ways? So these chip curbs are building on initial restrictions that the Biden administration posed in October of last year. And there's a couple venues for the tightening. So first, we're gonna see some additional restrictions on graphics chip sales to Chinese companies and advanced manufacturing equipment sales to Chinese companies. And we're also going to see some tightening on potential attempts by Chinese companies to avoid country-specific restrictions by routing their shipments through other countries. And the last thing to keep an eye on is adding Chinese chip design firms to a U.S. trade restriction list that basically requires overseas manufacturers to get a license from the U.S. government before filling orders from those companies.
2: Mackenzie, what prompted this tightening? Is it, well, the Republicans, or is it Huawei and
3: late, more
2: recent events that shows that maybe some of these curbs
3: just aren't working? So the U.S. announced its initial rule in October of last year and took a couple of months to get key allies, particularly the Netherlands and Japan, on board. And they've been working on a final version of that rule for a while. So this is not to be interpreted as a reaction to the huge tech breakthrough in China in August when Huawei released a smartphone powered by an advanced chip. But that has pretty much defined the conversation in U.S.-China tech relations in the month and a half since, and we'll be looking to the administration to see what actions specifically they might take on Huawei and its chip-making partner, SMIC.
2: We will indeed keep a close eye on the implications. And so too will, of course, the Chinese who have notably said that they don't want this to be weaponized or indeed politicized when it comes to technology and trade. Mackenzie Hawkins, great bit of reporting. We thank you. Let's continue the conversation. Joanne Feeney's with us, partner and portfolio manager at Advisors Capital Management with deep knowledge, expertise when it comes to semiconductors in the landscape. And Joanne, ultimately... Is this ever an efficient way of trying to curtail what is ultimately an ability to to make at home really advanced chips in China?
4: It's never gonna be efficient. You know, let's not try to guess the ultimate goals of the US policy. One effect likely though, is that it will slow down Uh, China's ability to deploy uh, really advanced chips for use in AI oriented servers. So it will slow China down. Now, in the meantime, though, it's harmful to U.S. companies that want to sell China those chips, you know, potentially like NVIDIA. But fortunately, we're in a period of time when there's such strong demand for AI capabilities in servers that even if NVIDIA loses some sales to China because of more restrictions, uh, it'll likely be able to sell them in the United States or someplace else in the world. Uh, So it'll slow China down but the horse has really left the barn in terms of the ability of China to ultimately produce advanced chips they just can't do it in a lot of in a lot of volume right now but ultimately over some years you know they'll they'll be able to do this because chip uh, technology you know has reached sort of the limits mostly of Moore's law and so it's hard for you know our companies to stay ahead when all China has to do is copy uh, what we've done so far.
0: Joanne, good to see you. We were just showing the names, actually now moving to the upside. NVIDIA and AMD on the the GPU or graphics side, and then the chip equipment makers, LAM, KLA, also positive. You said that this won't slow China down, but there's a refocus on the chip equipment makers in particular. With those US-based companies with exposure to China, is this more of a concern now than it was to you yesterday?
4: So, you know, we've been avoiding exposure to most of the equipment guys for a while because of these tensions with China. And so, you know, our position on that hasn't really changed. We have some selective exposure, but not to the major players like or applied. Um, And and I think what happened earlier, right, when, when China saw this coming, you know and saw the timing of these restrictions they actually imported a boatload of equipment so they're pretty well positioned you know again it's going to slow them down in terms of deploying really high end ai based servers because they're not going to be able to get all those chips but they have a lot of equipment from lithography out of you know the Netherlands from ASML to the etching machines to the deposition machines right so they can do an awful lot right now with the equipment that they have there are always ways to get the smaller and smaller feature sizes the to those more advanced chips using the older technology. It just takes many more steps to get there. It's w- much more expensive. So your question earlier, Ed, is it efficient? It's not going to be efficient for China to make these advanced chips, but they're going to be able to make almost everything uh, with the equipment they have, except for the most, the very most advanced chips. And that's where U.S. policy, I think, wants to be binding. And it will be for a while until China can make further advances in their own deployment of, of equipment or refinement of the equipment that they already have in place.
0: Bloomberg's reporting that these expanded restrictions could come early this week. For what it's worth, the U.S. Commerce Department and National Security Council declined to comment on the story. But a Chinese foreign ministry spokeswoman called this the U.S. politicizing, instrumentalizing and weaponizing trade and tech issues. Our colleague Mia, um, Mackenzie Hawkins pointed out that this is not sort of a, a, an escalation from the U.S. It's a rethink of a year-long policy Where do you stand on what this is or is not the US doing?
4: So you're asking me to sort of put on a policy, head well I'll, I'll do my best. I mean, clearly I the U.S. wants to slow down China's ability to use AI and to develop AI um, applications, particularly in the military. And so to the extent that the U.S. can succeed in that by restricting their access to these most advanced chips and the equipment to make the most advanced chips, the U.S. will be successful. Um, it's not the first time that trade policy has been used for things other than um, you know, tamping down uh, illegal trade. I mean clearly this is a political objective not an unfair trade practices response. Uh, And so you know it's it's certainly not something that's probably authorized under WTO rules. Uh, Nevertheless under national security uh, reasons clearly the US is pursuing this strategy and, and it will be effective it'll just slow China down. But as many have been saying and we have also it's only going to accelerate China's own investments in developing their own capabilities. Now, we think they're a long way off from being able to replicate what ASML has done or what LAM has done. But again, by repeating the processes that the, you know, Intel's and IBM's and global Foundries and TSMC's of the world use, SMIC can get to pretty close to some of the most advanced chips, as they've shown in that Huawei chip, for example.
2: Joanne, we, we ask you sometimes to put a policy hat on. And to that point, do you try and take that policy hat off? when it comes to actually having exposure to such companies. You said how you've limited your exposure to chip equipment makers because of some of the issues with U.S. and China. Well, what about an NVIDIA that at the moment can sacrifice Chinese sales, but ultimately do you want to be out of companies
4: that have such exposure to China? Yeah, no. So, right. So the investor hat, the portfolio manager hat requires that you look at policy. Obviously, you need to, to, to you know, handicap a little bit what is going to be in the U.S. interests, what they're going to try to do, uh, as well as sort of the e- economic outlook. So, you know, at ACM, at Advisors Capital, what we do is both the top-down macro and political situation, and we then build up the bottom-up analysis of companies by company. So NVIDIA is a great example. They have so many different opportunities because demand is so strong right now for AI capabilities in certain Servers, that we think if they lose a little bit from China, they'll be able to make it up elsewhere. It looks to us like they have kind of a waiting list, if you like, of companies that would like their most advanced chips. So, you know, China could potentially hurt in the longer run uh, if China is able to replicate the level and quality of chip that NVIDIA could otherwise supply. But if they can't, and we don't think they'll be able to do that for some years, China's going to have to be satisfied with lower end graphics chips out of the likes of Nvidia and AMD. So ultimately, we don't think there's going to be a big shift. Uh, in spending by China, they're going to have to be satisfied with lesser chips, even more so than they were after last October's uh, level of restrictions. And, and, and NVIDIA will be able to sell, again, more of its ultimately higher-end chips to U.S. and European uh, and other Southeast Asian uh, uh, customers.
0: Joanne Feeney, partner and portfolio manager at Advisors Capital Management, but also just long, long time researcher in the field of semiconductors. Thank you. Speaking of and sticking with chips, NVIDIA's H100 GPU has been one of the technology stories of the year. Before the Israel-Hamas war broke out, the chip giant had planned on holding its AI summit today in Tel Aviv, with insight into its AI strategy expected, but then cancelled the event. Bloomberg Technology visited NVIDIA and took a look at what the H100 GPU used to train AI models looks like in the real world. This is an individual H100 GPU or graphics processing unit, NVIDIA's AI accelerator. But in reality, it's not just a chip that comes out of a plant. When we talk about the H100 GPUs training AI models, we're likely talking about DGX H100, NVIDIA's AI supercomputer. That's eight H100 GPUs combined capable of 32 quadrillion floating point operations per second. Crazy computer performance. It's a server design and this is what it looks looks. looks like under the lid it starts with an H100 GPU seen here in the form of an SXM module eight individual SXMs are topped with heat sinks designed to dissipate heat generated from running big AI workloads those are connected on a single baseboard by interconnectors and that assembly alone weighs 60 pounds add CPUs and other components and a finished DGX system weighs almost 300 pounds but the scale in the real world is bigger still some of the most powerful large language models are trained on the Nvidia DGX SuperPod. That is 32 DGX H100 systems combined into what's called a scalable unit. At its absolute most mind-boggling scale, DGX SuperPod can be up to 64 scalable units. That's more than 16,000 individual H100 GPUs. An AI company may use several SuperPods to train their LLM. In the end, the DGX infrastructure sent out to the hyperscale cloud providers to put in their massive data to centres. I wanted to get my hands on an H100 Caroline, but th- it isn't just this little chip. That's the reality of what we're talking about.
2: You happen to do squats, Ed. Squats, to be able to uh, pick I, up I, that.
0: I just wanted to demonstrate that in the real world, sometimes you have to deadlift what we're talking about. But uh, And I've already got a lot of flack for that on the show. But check it out online. Really interesting experience going down to NVIDIA.
2: It's a great piece to just digest really what is behind technology. We thank you for it. Meanwhile, look, coming up, we are going to get serious and turn our attention back to the latest in Israel and Hamas, the war, and discuss the role of social media during times of crisis. More next. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive.
0: Amid the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas, President Biden is weighing a visit to the nation. We want to get more and the latest from the ground and bring in Bloomberg's Oliver Crook, who's live for us in Tel Aviv. Biden's visit, largely speculative at this point. There are other leaders, both from North America and the
5: EU, coming to town. What is the latest on the ground, Oliver? Yeah, so let's talk first about the military action. Over the weekend, we got sort of confirmation from something that we've widely anticipated, but basically Israel saying that the next stage of this war is going to involve a ground operation of some kind. Um, And that was sort of confirmed over the weekend. Um, Their focus right now has been on the aerial assault. They have been absolutely pummeling uh, Gaza for at least the last week. Um, They've had a few evacuation passages, a few hours where they say they're not going to bomb major arteries so that people can move south. We had one today. Yesterday and on Saturday as well, and the main question on the ground there is a question of aid. There is aid that is not really being able to get through. There have been speculation all day and and reports about um, potentially aid being able to move through the Egyptian border at the uh, checkpoint at Rafah, but that has not been, um, you know, uh, confirmed by us. In terms of the diplomacy side, yes, we are expecting uh, Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, to arrive tomorrow, and whether or not Biden comes, you know, to try um, to again as a sort of deterrent, but also to show the support. uh, of the United States for Israel, which has been um, fairly vocal at this point.
2: Meanwhile, I mean, you bring our attention to the human cost, Oliver, and we appreciate it. Just talk to us about the timing and time running out, according to Iran, at least, Iran's foreign minister, really talking about if we're going to avoid some sort of expansion to the conflict.
5: Yeah, so this has been. We've been hearing from Iran, kind of on the sidelines of this for the last few days. On Friday was sort of the first um, kind of ominous threat, and then we had the yeah, the foreign ministries today saying that the time for the political the political solution is running out, and the expansion of the war to other fronts approaching is inevitable. They said in uh, on 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 X, um, and again, this is part of the whole reason that Blinken has been going to uh, Qatar, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, um, Egypt, uh, Bahrain. This is where he has been because it's in one side to get sort of the back channels communicating with Tehran, but also deterrence. We also have a second aircraft carrier fleet that is coming to the Eastern Mediterranean. This is all about trying to provoke that sort of deterrence, but it's not just Iran, right? So just in the same way that the Israelis saw all of the horror on their phones, they were glued to it, the rest of the Arab world is seeing the exact same thing on what's going on in Gaza right now. And you've had protesters through the streets throughout this process.
2: Oli, thank you so much. Bloomberg's Oliver Crook there with the latest on the ground from Tel Aviv, but. I mean, Oliver just painted the picture there of how much everyone has turned to social media in this moment. And indeed, well, the Iranian foreign minister actually posting on X, you want to understand really how people are using social media and and what they should be looking at, if at all. Nora Benavides is with us, just free press. And Nora, you're a senior counsel, you're director of digital justice and civil rights, and really you run the organization's platform Accountability, the, the digital civil rights work there. How accountable ultimately are X, Meta, TikTok Zone and Byte Dance, How much are they looking for this moment of responsible nurturing of, of what's being put onto the platforms right now?
6: Well, thanks for having me, both of you. Um, You know, most of the major platforms have really failed the massive stress test over the last week and a half. In particular, Twitter or X now uh, has created the perfect environment for disinformation to thrive. And as your colleagues mentioned, people are turning to social media now more than ever as their primary way of getting rapid information. Most of us are hungry to figure out what's going on on the ground. And whether it's family members, journalists or others returning to these platforms only to be be met with a deluge of mislabeled videos, images that are taken from other time places, regions, etc., Ultimately, Elon Musk has shown that Twitter has failed, I think, uh, with a a kind of grandeur. You know, his bad decisions have literally led us to this moment. Um, He gutted critical teams, as other platforms have, like Meta and TikTok and YouTube. Um, Elon Musk has also changed the blue checkmark feature, which is, in the scheme of all of these swirling forces, one of the really big problems. It incentivizes people to now subscribe and they pay a small fee, but their content gets boosted. So if you're willing to pay that $8, your content might be featured in more people's feeds. He also needs ad money because advertisers have been fleeing the platform for a lot of these reasons. And it, one of his incentives has been to pay people for engagement and virality.
0: Yeah. It's crazy. Hey, Nora. <laughs> Nora, just for our audience, X's response to this has been to basically call an all-hands-on-deck situation. They've told us here on Bloomberg Technology that all staff are focused on the Israel-Hamas war. They've given us data on community notes action. And for Meta's part, they have a special operations team in place now with fluent Hebrew and Arabic speakers that are basically working 24-7 to review content. But at issue specifically seems to be video content videos purporting to show one thing when in reality they are another what is your view on the role video is playing here
6: uh, video is one of the last frontiers. It's really very difficult to moderate video content. And frankly, Elon Musk pointing to community notes as a way for users to do his job is inadequate. It's also inadequate that a week and a half after the conflict escalated, now is the moment that social media companies are pulling their rapid crisis centers together. That is days and days too late, citing to the ability to remove hundreds of thousands of posts. is inadequate because we have to understand the environment here is there are millions and millions of posts going out every day about this subject and billions of active monthly users trying to get that content and so the lack of teams the lack of policies in place the slow to respond crisis centers are just not enough to rein in the level of toxicity
0: all right nora benavidez of free press thank you for your time here on the show This is Talking Tech. First up, KKR raising $723 million in Japan's largest listing in nearly five years, that of chip equipment maker Kokutse Electric. Shares of the Spence begin trading on October 25th. Plus, Indonesia's biggest tech firm, Goto, plunged its most on record earlier today after revelations of a stock sale by a co-founder which ignited a sell-off. But Goto recovered after analysts argued the sell-off was overdone and not supported by
2: fundamentals. <laughs> Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in
0: New York. Um Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Caro, a very quick check-in on the markets. We started the week with the NASDAQ 100, higher by percentage point. Remember, we're coming off three straight weekly gains on the NASDAQ 100 amid all of the volatility of global markets, worries about China's economy. We're ahead of earnings season. But two of those weeks, we notched a gain of just like a tenth of 1%. Um, and that's inclusive of the IPO window that we had, which hasn't done much to give us sort of that much momentum to the upside. This week's big. A lot of Fed we get China GPD, uh, GDP reading on Wednesday. But th- th- there is a growing list of factors. And if you read that story about on the Bloomberg, a lot of hope pinning on those big five mega cap tech names this earnings season in terms of earnings growth to bring that positive story back to tech. But also tech continuing to lead the way amid a broader market that's kind of not sure where it stands.
2: And that's in the public markets. Of course, this all feeds into the private markets as well. And we're going to sort of be talking about both right here in New York because it's Tech Week, upon us, officially kicking off in the Big Apple with industry titans, startups gathering, well, basically throughout the entire week for events. There's going to be panels, conversations, breakfasts, much more. All week long on Bloomberg Technology, we're going to be speaking with those founders, with those investors, with those executives to discuss the tech ecosystem here in New York City and why they choose to call it home, NYC. I'm pleased to say we're now joined by two key players when it comes to investing in the area. David Haber, a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, who focuses on technology investments, particularly in financial services, and Julie Yu, a general partner in the bio and health team at Andreessen, who leads investments in companies that are transforming how we access pay and experience healthcare, a lot of which is an epicenter here in New York. And David, I start with you because... What do you see at the moment in New York that is making more people put boots on the ground, particularly, Andrew, so what you've got 80-plus New York-based employees now. You've got new office space. Absolutely. Why? Yeah,
7: look, I, I've always believed that opportunities live between fields of expertise, and I really enjoy exploring those intersections. And I think it really is a metaphor for New York City because technology has a tendency of cutting across industries, and I think the companies that really represent New York best are those that really live at the intersection between technology and many of the large incumbent industries that, you know, exist here in New York, whether that's media, advertising, fashion, or financial services.
2: And indeed healthcare, and it's interesting, Julie, that's the area that you focus on, and how much you're seeing that health is becoming. Some of the deals, the checks, the VC count, we're currently seeing a, a chart just showing that about 403 in the third quarter is how many per metro area we've seen of the share of U.S. VC deals, the count that is in New York, how much of that
8: is healthcare and how much should it be? Absolutely. I mean, healthcare, um, in many ways, when I started investing here at the firm about four years ago, I sort of likened it to the 1999 of the internet era. And so I feel like we're really at the beginning of a dawn of this new digital health um, uh, era and domain. And um, you know, to David's point, I think uh, maybe a little known fact about the New York tech scene is that whereas most people think about fintech as really the biggest uh, sort of cohort of of startups and and venture capital activity, it turns out that uh, depending on what chart you look at, Mm -hmm. health tech is also number one or number two uh, within the New York tech scene as well uh, because of the uh, incumbency as uh, in the same way that we have financial services, bank bank, uh, companies and and such uh, in the New York scene. We also have tremendously huge uh, healthcare companies, whether they be insurance companies, whether they be biopharmaceutical companies, whether they be hospital systems, Mm. also based in that city, and it creates a really unique ecosystem for innovation. And so we've really seen a ton of activity in recent years in that domain.
0: Julie, let's show that chart again which is deal count, right? Mm-hmm. In San Francisco or the Silicon Valley area has kind of led historically from a, a deal count, even dollar volume perspective. But if you extrapolate back, The gap in terms of deal count and and dollar volume is closing between New York and San Francisco. What does that tell you?
8: Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the reasons that we've invested so heavily in the New York tech scene is that healthcare in particular has really seen a rise there. One of the theses that we have about why that's the case is that we have this concept of what's called a digital health native founder, someone who has actually grown up in digital health companies that have been quite successful and are now coming out and starting their own businesses and and really seeding the next generation of entrepreneurs And many of those companies, most of those companies, in fact, have actually been based in New York. So we have the likes of companies like Oscar Health, which is a publicly traded insurtech business that has now spawned a number of entrepreneurs that we've backed um, that have, again, grown up in a company that sits at the intersection of healthcare, technology, and financial services and can now take those skills into the next wave of companies that are being built.
0: Uh, David, the story in San Francisco, Bay Area, and Silicon Valley is well told, right? You have the Stanford computer science dropout. And they start a company here because the funding was here and the like-minded people were here. And in some sense, that's still true, right? We talk about it on the show all the time. What is the equivalent story in New York? Look, I, as I said, I think New York is such a unique ecosystem.
7: You know, I, I joined—I first moved to New York City in, in 2009 in the wake of the financial crisis. You know, and at, at the time, technology was sort of this cute little underdog industry, again in the shadows of, you know, many of the large kind of incumbent industries here in New York. As I mentioned, you know, be it media, you know, advertising, you know, fashion, or financial services. And again, I think the companies that are really sort of indicative of this ecosystem are those that that sort of intersect with those incumbent in, industries. Um, you know, obviously, I'm quite biased, but, but fintech is you know, a huge presence here in New York. And um, it's really a, a great place to become sort of a bridge between the startup ecosystem and a lot of these you know, decision makers at a lot of these large companies.
2: A reason, perhaps, David, that you're biased or that you might say is because you're a founder, of course. Bond Street was bought by Goldman. It was all about sort of growth financing to businesses. What is the financing like right now for entrepreneurs who want to go and build things, who want to be ensuring that they're bringing together the large caps meet the startup ecosystem. Are you writing checks? Is the VC community energized right now to write checks?
7: Absolutely. Again, just for context, you know, I, I joined Andreessen Horowitz in July of 2021, really to help plant the flag here in New York City. At the time, we were six people in New York. Today, we're over 80 people in New York, which makes us likely one of the largest venture capital firms, at least by headcount here in New York City, so you know, we're incredibly excited to be here and, and to be writing uh, you know, checks into the entrepreneurs in this ecosystem, and again, we've seen a lot of other large firms join, you know, open up offices, offices in New York in the last 12 months, and so while the markets are challenging, I think there's plenty of capital available for, for entrepreneurs
0: starting new companies. Julie, your your academic background, MIT, both as an undergrad and then Harvard MIT for a master's, I believe. Mm -hmm. How closely, as, as an expanded group of partners in New York City and the East Coast, do you track the academic bases that talent can come from? You know, there's a lot of emphasis here, obviously, on Stanford and Berkeley is there the same pool of talent being generationally created each year out of the East Coast
8: absolutely I mean I think uh, when you look at our portfolio r- roughly about half of our bio and health portfolio is based somewhere on the East Coast whether it be in the Boston ecosystem largely biotech focused there uh, and then the majority of my personal portfolio is actually based in New York and hence I spend a ton of time there with my partner David on companies that really sit at the intersection actually of healthcare and fintech where we see a huge amount of opportunity I think um, the other you know piece of this David mentioned that he is a recovering fintech entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. I'm also a recovering health tech entrepreneur, and that's really where we see a huge uh, advantage for our team in that we have all been ex-builders in these domains, and, and really that's, I would say, probably more where we focus is where are the pools of talent that have actually built businesses that are native to different industries that can now come together and uh, see these unique opportunities at those intersections. Of course, you were
2: early member of a software engineering team that was eventually acquired by Oracle, so you know how the exit route tends to look like, Julie, and I'm I'm interested as to whether or not, is there more diversity in terms of the founders that you see in New York? I mean, there's always been this concern that, you know, when we are seeing it from the same pool of MIT and Harvard, as you two sit in front of us, as there has been within that ecosystem not always as much diversity as you'd like to see in terms of people of color, women coming forward with business ideas.
8: How does that look in New York? Yeah, I think New York has always been um, a huge exemplary sort of diversity pool in in many ways, whether it be culturally, whether it be based on background, and uh, more importantly, as we've talked about uh, in in terms of the actual experience set that founders are able to bring uh, to this next wave of startups. So we absolutely do see that in the New York scene.
0: David, tell me what New York Tech Week looks like for you. How many hackathons are you going to? How many mixes? What kind of events? Seriously, that's what's going on out here on the West Coast. What's it like on the East Coast? Yeah, well, we're really incredibly excited to be here.
7: Um, You know, as I mentioned, Andreessen has been hosting these Tech Weeks in cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles. New York City, New York Tech Week stands to be our largest uh, event ever. Uh, We have 350 different events hosted not only by our firm, but by folks across the tech ecosystem, which again, I think speaks to you know how dynamic uh, this ecosystem has become uh, so we're kicking things off with an event tonight uh, which we're really excited about and then Julie and I are hosting an event again uh, at the intersection of healthcare and FinTech and uh, really excited to host you know a number of entrepreneurs building at that intersection
2: God, I love it David Haber Julie you thank you as your well social endeavors pick up a piece for this particular week we, we thank you both from Andreessen and Horowitz and Ed what else we've got coming up
0: Well, digesting, recovering fintech entrepreneur, recovering health tech founder. What's that about? But coming up on the show, we're going to be talking targeted advertising on your social media feeds and how it isn't likely to change. Anytime soon, we're going to discuss. This is Bloomberg Technology.
2: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? a bit of a deep dive on, well, a certain business model at play at the moment. The economics of zero ad versions on mainstream social media services. Look, they're not particularly likely to appeal to tech companies or indeed their users it would seem. Indeed, targeted advertising, it totally revolutionized the media business. Made Meta, for example, one of the most valuable companies in the world. Our very own Bloomberg, Max Chafkin, writes in today's Bloomberg Business Week all about the pros and the cons. You join us now and basically why will there be ultimately such push against this unless they're regulated that way? Right, so the,
9: the big reason that this model is popular uh, is that it's extremely lucrative. Uh, Facebook, uh, Meta, has built you know, a very large you know, a business that generates more than $100 billion a year uh, serving these targeted ads to people. It has a lot of power uh, over retailers, anyone who wants to show uh, sell products on the internet, as well as media companies, because it's amassed this huge database, essentially, of personal information about people that it can then rent to third parties. And in Europe right now, we have uh, regulators pushing back against aspects of that model, and Meta is sort of turning around and saying, well, okay, if you don't like it, you can pay us uh, for, for Facebook and Instagram, pay us a, a relatively high monthly price. It looks like they're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of $20 a month, um, and you'll see no ads at all, <laughs> which uh, you know, I, I would guess that very few people will actually be willing to pay for because you're talking about a price you know that costs more than some wireless plans. Obviously, costs more than a lot of newspapers, uh, Disney Plus, Met, Netflix, and so on. It's a lot of money for social media.
2: It is. And it's also a lot of money for people who don't make as money as others. And it, in some way, it then means someone who is, well, has more money to spend becomes able to pay for more privacy, and that doesn't seem particularly fair.
9: So this is an argument that Mark Zuckerberg, uh, you know, founder of Facebook and Meta, has, has long used as an argument against this, saying mm-hmm. that it would be unfair, be unequal to, to allow people to sort of buy their way out of ads. Um, w- what happened you know, in 2018, Europe passes the GDPR, this big privacy regulation. And basically, uh, Facebook has been fighting ever since over exactly how it applies to the company. And now this is kind of their latest gambit to uh, make the regulators happy. Uh, yet to be seen whether the regulators will definitely sign off on this plan, although um, it's looking certainly
0: possible, if not likely. Um, Max, let's look at the proposed subscription costs, Facebook and Instagram versus everything else. There it is, 20 bucks. I, I pay for X premium, for example, $8 a month or $84 a year, depending how you look at it. And I did that because I wanted to experience those additional features. But beyond price, what this chart illustrates is choice, right? At some point, you're just going to say... This is a platform, be it Facebook or Instagram, that I don't need to have.
9: Yeah. Although the, the thing is, you're not going to have to make that choice, be- and that's the whole point of this, because you will be allowed to continue uh, looking at your personalized ads, and and I think that's the bet here from from uh, Mark Zuckerberg's standpoint that you know most people are going to look at twenty dollars and say you know heck no, I don't, I don't want to pay for that, and they'll stay in the in the personalized advertising s- uh, scheme, which generates a ton of money. So so the you know average revenue per user in the United States for Facebook is is something like two hundred more than $200 a year. So so they're totally happy to have you continue to experience this free social network and for them to have, you know, a a near monopoly or a duopoly, depending on how you think about it, on um, social ads, uh, you know,
0: on the Internet. The the buzzword right now in tech across both social media and, and I guess, e-commerce is personalization. And Meta's whole thing has been taking data to make sure that what you look at is relevant to you, how does a premium subscription model impact that?
9: Well, what what they'll say is that you know if you if you you have no ads uh, whatsoever, then it would be fine, right? You're still going to see the personalized feed, um, you know, your friends and 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 things that you're interested in. You will no longer see personalized ads, which uh, you know if if you're talking to like their ad salespeople, that would be a huge problem. For most people, it's it's probably no big deal. The thing that they're really fighting against would be some kind of rule that would prevent them or allow people to opt out of personalization or make it easy to opt out of personalization because then they would just have to serve you ads you know, based on you know, your location or, or whatever, some, some essentially uh, use context like the way that Google does to serve you ads rather than serving ads based on things it knows about you, which from their point of view would be bad and I think would certainly be less lucrative.
2: Ultimately, I mean, you can in some way pay for what a blue tick subscription, I don't think it's even a subscription, but to be in some way anointed someone that should be listened to on Meta and Facebook in the same way that Twitter does a little bit, but I think you actually have to tick some boxes and actually whether you're... Someone who needs to have that privacy and needs to have it said that you are who you say you are and pay for it. So how's that thing going? That sort of whole experiment thus far. So, and we should say this is something that not just Meta is playing with. Uh,
9: TikTok is testing uh, sort of paid paid experiences with fewer ads or no ads. Snapchat has a no ads paid experience mm-hmm. that it's piloting, um, and 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 Twitter, of course, or X, has this uh, you know much vaunted blue check system. And mine go to three subscription uh, you know, levels, and, right? and exactly, and and a has single, say, signaled there's going to be a higher tier. You know, as Ed just said, the current subscription costs between $8 and $11, depending on where you buy it. Um, it you know, maybe the, the new one will cost $20 or something like that for no ads. We should say, none of these have done very well. Uh, Elon Musk has relentlessly promoted, you know, this uh, subscription thing. Um, we're talking about a tiny percentage of, of Twitter X's audience. You know, a, a, a revenue stream that in no way replaces the kind of revenue they were able to achieve from advertising. I mean, the problem here isn't necessarily that people don't want, you know, ad-free experiences or premium social network experiences. It's that online advertising is a much, much better business than that. And so companies that are looking to, you know, change their business model would be giving up huge sums of revenue, which is something maybe Elon Musk can do, you know, private company, and he's Elon Musk, but it's going to be a lot harder for most public companies to, to pull off.
0: All right. Bloomberg Businessweek columnist Max Chafkin with The Breakdown. Thank you. Apple's iPhone 15 may not be as hot a commodity on the smartphone market. At least in China, data from CounterPoint Research estimates that iPhone 15 sales are down nearly 5% compared to the iPhone 14 after the first 17 days post-release. However, the data does lump all of those iPhone 15 models together in aggregate. Joining us, who else? Bloomberg's Mark German, Chief Correspondent. Mark, it's an interesting data point because it's kind of counter to the commentary that Apple gave us in earnings for the end of the June quarter, right? iPhone would accelerate. We thought the iPhone 15 would be a hit. What have we learned?
10: Yeah, these are a couple interesting data points, they're pointing towards the iPhone potentially going down double digits uh, in recent weeks in terms of sales uh, in mainland China. Now, the June quarter was very strong for Apple in China, one of their strongest uh, in the company's history, but there's been a few things that happened uh, since then. There was the launch of the Huawei, uh, the new Mate phone there, Uh, there was discussion of some government agencies banning the use or expanding the banning of use of iPhones there, Uh, there were some concerns around nationalism and potentially some consumers in China souring on the iPhone ahead of that launch. Uh, we saw when the new iPhone 15s went on sale in China that there was a tremendous amount of early demand. There were incredible lines for the iPhone 15 in China. Uh, so these are two data points. We won't necessarily know for sure uh, what's going on with the iPhone, not even this earnings cycle, right? Apple reports fourth quarter earnings November 2nd. Uh, we're not going to get a full picture of how the iPhone is doing in China with the latest model until the end of January, early February, when they report q one sales. Obviously, the fourth quarter only had about a week and a half or so of iPhone sales. So we have to take all these data points into consideration. Yeah probably have to wait a few months to know the real story. Uh, But certainly, I am tending to believe that there is some uh, decline there on the iPhone in China. The good news is, is you're seeing a tremendous uh, increase for the iPhone momentum in the United States and elsewhere. So you're probably going to get a bit of an offset there from uh, going down in one country and significantly up in the other.
2: Talk to us, therefore, about the U.S. and the executive team that they have based here, Mark, because you wrote over the weekend that actually, well, amid sort of these pushes and polls globally, there has been uh, some more elevated titles in VP land at least.
10: Yeah, that's right. So Apple obviously is run by Tim Cook and under him is what's called the ET. That's the executive team. That's about 11 uh, senior vice presidents. That's your head of hardware, head of software, head of legal, CFO, et cetera. But below all of those people uh, is a group called the top 100, right? That is their vice presidents. The top 100 actually includes all of those people, uh, but you have about 100 VPs below them. They do promotions every October. They lost about a dozen vice presidents over the last two years or so. And so they're sort of refueling those ranks. There's new VPs for retail. Actually three uh, women have been elevated to the vice president level in the retail organization, which is pretty significant for the company uh, in terms of the diversity efforts and putting new lieutenants under their head of retail there. Uh, there are new vice presidents in operations, product operations and product manufacturing, and a few new vice presidents in software engineering. So uh, pretty significant uh, elevations across the board at the company, sort of creating this new generation. Uh, of top executives at the firm.
2: Mark Bergman, always with the best breakdown. We thank you so much. Meanwhile, look, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology.
10: Yeah, big thank you to
0: those of you listening to the podcast. You can get it on all the Bloomberg platforms, Apple, iHeart, Spotify. And we're also posting the show to YouTube. From SF in New York City, this is Bloomberg Technology.
3: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage.